0: You're listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org.
1: Good afternoon, everyone, or morning for some of you. My name is Sara Pantuliano, I'm the Chief Executive at ODI. And I'm really delighted to welcome you all to today's webinar. Well, we're going to be discussing the role of adaptive leadership to the COVID-19 response. I think we're all experiencing the global coronavirus, coronavirus crisis, but what we're here to discuss today is actually the global crisis in leadership. Um, I think we've all realised the, over the past few weeks how the outcome um, of the response to COVID-19 is ultimately shaped by effective leadership, you know, by appropriate policies in a context of what is a really fast-changing, evolving um, set of risks and uncertainties. So, today we're going to try and attempt to not just talk about you know the current leadership responses, but really try and provide some solutions, some ideas for approaches that can enable a more effective leadership. Um, and this is going to be both in terms of national responses and global responses, and really thinking about how we can better bridge the gap between science. Policy and practice. So our discussion will revolve around four key areas of what we see as successful adaptive leadership. The first is around using collective decision-making approaches. Um, second is around building trust—trust trust with teams, with communities, with individuals. Um, third is around being open and transparent about learning. And fourth is about bridging bridging science, policy, and practice. And so. To cover such a range of important features for effective leadership, we have put together a really great panel that can really speak to the various dimensions of adaptive leadership. Um, So we're really delighted, privileged, I'd say, to have with us Dr. David Navarro, who is a special envoy to the coronavirus um, response, who will be able to share some really incredibly valuable insights from a global response perspective, particularly in terms of collective decision making. And we're really privileged to also have with us Dr. Ruth Carnall, who is the former chief executive of NHS London and a board member of the King's Fund, who will obviously share her perspective from you know, a health provider and an expert in this field. Um, joining from Addis, we have Dr. Akebe Okubai. It's really fantastic to see you, Akebe. Um Akebe is a senior minister and a special advisor to the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, but he's also a distinguished fellow at ODI. And he's been really very vocal in sharing you know, the, the perspective of his ministry on the importance of leadership during this crisis, both at national and global levels. And last but not least, Ben Ramalinga, who is a research associate at ODI and really the person who has inspired um, this webinar. Ben, you know, together with other two colleagues, Lenny Wilde and Matt Ferrari, wrote a really insightful and widely disseminated briefing note on the importance of adaptive leadership in the COVID-19 response. Um, if you are connecting from Brazil, you can see the briefing notes in, you know, the link um, on, on the side. You know, there is a link to the briefing notes in the if you scroll at the side. Um, and I also like to really welcome all of you. We have more than 500 people um, signed up to join the seminar today from 63 different countries, which really makes this, you know, a truly global conversation. Um, we will engage you in a number of different ways. First of all, I'd like to share that we, we're going to start with a poll. We want to hear your thoughts um, on what really um, are the biggest challenges to leadership, but also the most important enabling factors. So Again, if you are joining from a browser, Scroll down under the stream and you see the poll question appear. Unfortunately, this will not work if you are joining from you know using a phone or through the app. But if you are in the browser, you see the question now. And the question is what do you think is the biggest challenge to effective leadership in the coronavirus response? Is it A making collective decisions across diverse groups, or B building trust with teams, communities and individuals? B, being open and transparent about learning, and D, bridging science, evidence and information on policy-making and decision-making. So please respond in the next half an hour or so, and then before I open the discussion with the panel, um, I, will, I will tell you what you all collectively think You know the most important feature is. Um, we will also be taking questions from all of you for the panel discussion, so again, use the chat box Functionality to put questions that I will then have to select from, you know, to ask the panelists, and do tweet. The hashtag is adaptdev, so please, you know, get the conversation going online as well. But let me get started right away because unfortunately David can only be with us for part of today's webinar we're already lucky you know to have a slice of his time so without further ado I'd really like to welcome David Nabarro to kick off the conversations and you know David do tell us how we can better use collective decision making processes for global good leadership
2: thank you very much indeed Sarah what a delight it is to be with you all greetings to Ruth, to Arkebe and to Ben, uh, a joy to be part of this panel. Yes, I'm working at the moment as an envoy for the World Health Organization, but I have been involved in quite a number of other major challenges over the last few decades, particularly in relation to food, climate and nature within the context of the Sustainable Development Goals. I'm going to talk about COVID quite, quite in, with, with a certain amount of specificity, and I'm just checking that I've got my timer on, because I think that it's worth just all of us just making sure that we're on the same basic space with regard to thinking about this new threat. We've only known about the virus for four months. When I say we, I mean the public health community. And it's really an an extraordinarily tricky situation to be trying to exercise leadership in relation to a threat that is so totally novel. Just a few things about it. It's a coronavirus, it's not flu, it's not Ebola, it's not a virus that we've had causing a global pandemic ever before. And we only know about a few coronaviruses, one, which causes the common cold, and then a few others, particularly one that came along in 2003, causing severe acute respiratory syndrome uh, in a number of East Asian countries and Canada. And so we haven't got a precedent really to work on. And if we work on other viruses and ask them to help us establish the best ways to go, we may well end up making mistakes. But what is a mistake? When you're dealing with something new and you're learning about it as you go along, In real life, what you actually have to recognise is that everybody is trying to find a way to deal with this threat, and the only way in which they can move towards whatever is the best for society is by learning from each other while they're working. It's very much an exercise of constant learning, and that's why this focus on adaptive leadership here today is so important. We depend all the time on scientists because when we talk about science, we're talking about the activity through which we test hypotheses, whatever they might be. And if we find that the result of experience, our hypotheses are wrong, then we must adapt our hypotheses and, and go on adapting them till we get a better understanding of what's really happening. And that's how it's been with the COVID. The virus starts by actually infecting an individual who can then go on and infect a lot of other individuals And it becomes a kind of chain of transmission. And because that infection happens through close physical contact, the way you deal with outbreaks is that you stop people from being able to transmit the virus to each other by asking them to isolate themselves as soon as they have symptoms. And then you find those with whom they've been in contact with recently, and you ask them to isolate themselves as well. And in the meantime, you protect individuals in society who are particularly at risk and you look after those in society who are providing help because they may be exposed to particular threats. And here we're talking about health workers, many of whom unfortunately have become exposed and become ill, and some have died. So, coming to terms with reality of this virus, how it's transmitted, the fact that it's here and it's dangerous, that's been an important part of the leader's role, very much adapting to new thinking and new realities all the time. And now here's a new thing. A lot of leaders thought that this virus would come along, cause trouble, and then go away. That it would be a sort of a flash in the pan, a bad flash in the pan, but that would be it. We'd go back to life as normal. But no, I think we're all coming to realise that this virus is here to stay. And that actually, as we come through the current set of big outbreaks, what we then have to do is to learn to live with the virus without it creating so much disturbance to our lives that it means that we have to go on living in lockdown forever. Instead, we have to learn to be able to defend our societies against the virus, to interrupt transmission, and when outbreaks develop out of the blue, to be able to suppress them very, very quickly and robustly. Indeed, what we've learned is the quicker you act, even when there are only a few cases, the easier it is to go on living with the virus in your midst because you're closing down outbreaks super fast. And any delay, because the spread of the virus is so dramatic, can actually lead to a huge outbreak occurring almost unnoticed, and suddenly you find health workers are in danger, health services are overwhelmed, and a whole series of other impacts are having in society. And then you have to impose a lockdown, and then even more impacts happen. It's a real systems issue. One system gets perturbed, then other systems get perturbed. And these are not just mechanical systems, these are human systems, they're living systems made up of people who are trying to come to terms with a virus and in containing that virus, their own particular ways of living and of enjoying themselves suddenly get disturbed and upended. So, how do you lead in this kind of context? Perhaps most importantly, you need to have spaces for learning while working. And those spaces for learning have to be spaces where people can come together without fear that they're going to be put into any kind of embarrassment by sharing what they not only know but what they suspect, so that they can learn and grow in a safe space. And creating these safe spaces for leadership is one of the biggest challenges right now because actually at the moment, the international spaces that exist for leaders to come together and share are hotly contested actually at the moment on the international scene the governments that create the spaces within which we all have to act don't get on too well and so that's between governments we have quite a lot of uh, challenges going on but even within countries there are often differences in the point of view of federal government, state government and local government. And what we're finding is that whenever whenever these differences exist, leadership gets much harder to exercise. And indeed, leaders feel incredibly constrained by the political environment within their work. And this horrible virus, it thrives when there is political dissent. It thrives when experts can't get together and focus on what to do. It thrives when people are uncertain about actions that they should take. So the space within which adaptive leadership can function is quite seriously constrained in some communities, and that creates a major difficulty. So what what am I going to suggest? Well, we need to actually work super hard to create these safe spaces for leaders to come together and work through what they're going to do in the face of a major threat. And if they can do it on this threat, they can do it on the many other major threats that we face in our world today. What are the four things that we expect of these spaces for leaders to come together? Number one, being able to anticipate what might happen next. You know, we've seen that as a result of the lockdowns, there's a food and nutrition crisis emerging. There's a crisis in everything to do with transport on the sea. There's a crisis in detention. There's a crisis in migrant management, and there's a crisis for older people. Well, we need to be able to go on anticipating the knock-on effects of COVID in so many other areas. Secondly, always as we're doing this, we've got to be able to articulate to a huge global public that is trying to make sense of all this, we have to be able to share with them what we're thinking, so that they are abreast with us and that they can be alongside us as we are adapting, and that comes to the third point, which is adaptation. There are strategic (laughs) principles for dealing with this virus, and we've got to be able to adapt those principles to different locations. And lastly and most importantly, all who are leading are accountable in real time. Because if you're trying to take people with you and help them make sense of things, and they've got their own anxieties, to be able to level with them so that they can question and judge is a key part of this leadership function anticipate articulate adapt and be accountable and by the way it's best if we're as authentic as we can be when we're doing this we're human everybody who's being asked to change is human we've got to share our humanity otherwise people won't trust us at all thanks very much
1: thank you so much david for sharing in you know, such strong and valuable insights. Uh, You you spoke really cogently of the importance of adaptive leadership, you know, the importance of um, really for leaders to, you you call it, do an exercise in constant learning, adapting hypotheses and responses, but also the constraints um, that they feel. Um, I was reflecting on um, how willing is the public, do you think, to tolerate this learning, I and mean, would he really see that as something valuable, or would he not see it as a, you know, almost like um, an element of a sign of, you know, past failures, and so something to be censored rather than celebrated? I mean, how how can we help leaders go beyond the anxiety of showing that, you know, if they're learning in a way, they're admitting that something they did before wasn't quite right?
2: Sarah, I think this is at the heart of the discussion we're having today. Do we actually trust the people for whom we are exercising leadership roles enough to level with them on our own uncertainties, our own vulnerability, our own wish for them to appreciate that we are having to work in uncharted territory? All my work in the past few weeks has convinced me That people everywhere, as members of the human family, get it that this is new. They appreciate that we're having to learn while doing. And they are grateful if we explain to them how our learning is going. They get super frustrated if they feel that they're being given bits of information designed to try to make them feel happy, designed to try to give them hope, when actually they don't want false hope. They want to know what we're really thinking, and they want to know why. They want to know the kind of, I suppose it's trade-offs that we're having to try to navigate as we work out how to safeguard older people without denying them their right to see their younger relatives, how to enable particularly people who are on daily wages or in the informal sector to continue earning whilst at the same time understanding that By coming together, they may inadvertently be transmitting disease. So, yes, I think that the public would much rather that we trusted them and leveled with them than we said, sorry, it's too complicated to share, or I don't want to share this news because it's a bit serious or bad. That's my personal view. And I haven't seen anything in the last few weeks to convince me that any other way is appropriate. Being open, being honest, being straight, whatever other word we want to use for it, I think that's key for everybody. 7.8 billion people deserve it.
1: Great. Um, thank you very much. There is quite a few questions from the online audience. Um, I'll just pick one or two uh, because I know you can't join the debate afterwards, so you won't be able to, um, to share that. But I'm having a, a BBC that moment, even though I told my much older kids not to come in. Um, So, the two questions are, um, so uh, Mr. Navarro mentioned the expectation of the virus being a flash in the pan. Um, Leaders across different levels and sectors still appear to base decisions on wrong assumptions. How do we best protect ourselves from wrong assumptions when information is continuously evolving? Uh, And a related question is. Um, from Uwe chorus from CARE International. Uh, so, do you think that actually openness and transparency are the biggest challenge and driver of good leadership in this crisis? And finally, from Anusha uh, Budna, uh, do you have any example of real-time leadership, a good real-time leadership?
2: Gosh. Um, let me just start with the end. I think there are multiple examples of really good real-time leadership underway all over the world right now. I see them everywhere, not necessarily from the people who are often seen as the leaders, the CEOs, or the heads of government, or heads of public health. But yes, we're seeing it also in households. We're seeing it in communities. We're seeing it in small and medium enterprises. We're seeing it in labour union. In fact, this is a time when everybody can show that they have the capacity to lead for themselves, for those they're close to, or those in their networks. And yes, I am seeing that more and more and more. And I suppose that's what gives me real confidence that humanity is going to be able to learn from this particular challenge and apply the learning in so many other places. But yes, finding ways that leaders can be able to trust their societies and to encourage that trusting behaviour is particularly difficult. And I don't fully know the answer to that. I suppose that's what, in this seminar, we'll all be able to come to some agreement on. For me, it's always been the identity that i have as a public health professional whereas i'm working for the health of all regardless of who they are their sex their ethnicity their geographical origin my values are there and i don't actually do anything to to try to hide them because they're what drives me and i think that being able to demonstrate your values and show that they're linked to your identity being able to relate to people in an open and respectful manner, whoever they are, being able to share your feelings as well as your knowledge. All these are behaviours that will, I believe, lead to greater trust. And I I really would just like all of us to share with anybody we know who's in a leadership role, you know, do trust and be ready to trust because it makes such a difference. They say that love is letting go of fear. And I think it's hard to lead for the future without, at heart, having a capacity to love. And lastly, I just how do, how, does we, how do we cope with the fact that an awful lot of people are behaving as though COVID is here but is going to be gone away in a few weeks and everything will go back to normal? I just have to keep saying it. I mean, I'm not on my own. Ted Ross, the Director General of WHO, is saying it all the time. So are all of the World Health Organization staff. Perhaps it's a bit of an inconvenience for political leaders to hear that. So they try to make uh, remarks about whether or not they trust WHO. But it is so important right now that everybody who possibly can just simply says, COVID is here to stay. It's not showing any signs of going away. And it's a kind of virus that if you underestimate it, will lead to horrendous consequences. Just look at what's happening to older people throughout Europe and North America. So, I'm going to go on saying it. I hope everybody on this call will go on saying it. Not saying it as a thing for gloom and despair, but simply as something that we can all learn to deal with. And by learning to deal with COVID in an adaptive way, we can learn to deal with an awful lot of other threats that are around us. Sarah, I hope I was giving reasonable answers. I often tend to talk too long, but I stop now.
1: No, no, it's it's absolutely great, David, and thank you for the honesty. You know, and also the reality check in terms of how long we're going to, you know, be living with COVID and the reality of COVID and the importance, not just of adaptive leadership, but all of us being able to be ready to adapt you know, to live um, with the viruses, And that is probably something we'll have to do for the next year or two. We need to start thinking about the changes we need to make yeah. our lives. I think that's very, very important for our audience to hear. Um, Ruth, let me come to you, because obviously you have a lot of personal experience in dealing you know, with this sort of crisis and advising leaders that have had to respond to this crisis. And you've also seen, you know, the challenges in trying to promote changes in, you know, critical things sure. like acute, care where there was a lot of resistance to what has then become our standard practice so what's your view on what really makes successful collective decision making
0: thank you Sarah and thank you David for your uh, introductory talk I should say um, before I say anything actually that I approach this topic uh, with complete uh, humility actually uh, nothing in my life or in my uh, work experience has properly Prepared me for the scale of the challenge that's now faced. So, you know, there's no point in me trying to pre- pretend that some I did some one of these before, uh, and therefore, you know, what I know can now be uh, used here. I have led large organisations and large systems through big transformational change programmes. I've dealt with one-off emergencies, uh, which can be put into, albeit a very intense, but into a box. Uh, Whereas what this requires is that we redefine our whole approach and that redefinition leads to a new normal. So the emergencies that I've dealt with in the past have felt horrific at the time, but they've gone away Uh, and they've gone away. We've had memorials and all the rest of it, but they've gone away. So to me, what this requires is exactly as you say, uh, collaboration across the world. Collaboration within countries across sectors, which we find extremely difficult in the UK, maybe not in other countries, but in the UK, yes. And collaboration amongst professionals, which also, believe it or not, we find extremely difficult, even when there's some alignment around objectives. So that collaboration, though, to my mind, needs to be, needs to have direction. In other words, it's not just collaboration that goes round and round and round and has a high feel-good factor but doesn't take us anywhere. It must have some direction, which is where, of course, the leadership dimension comes into this. So what, should, what does direction mean? I mean, To me, it means trying the very best we can to, to seek alignment. You know, what is it that we think we need to do and who needs to do it? How do they need to do it? By when? How can they be supported? And, of course, usually central to that is data. Uh, and the analysis of that that data, which gives you a range of options, you can appraise them and decide which is the best to go with. And in this situation, yes, there's lots of data, uh, but it's changing all the time uh, and isn't always reliable and often conflicted. So to me, that's where transparency about judgment comes in. So we have lots of people in healthcare uh, in the UK who have a huge experience that can be brought to bear on this problem, but they don't have proof So they are required to apply their judgment. And I think that's where the transparency is important. If what you're applying is your judgment, inadequate though it may be because of the lack of life experience on a topic like this, be honest about that. Because I think if you explain to people what you're doing, why you're doing it, how you've come to the judgment that you have, then on the occasions, which will be many, where you get that wrong, then people will think, actually, nevertheless, I understood the explanation and I went with it. And yes, uh, it's turned out not to be right, but I understood the journey, so let's try again. My own experience is that people will revert to a defensive and risk-averse silo-based response if they are threatened, uh, unless they can be convinced that there is an absolutely compelling, a reason for them to change, a reason that they can connect with both with their head, evidence where that's available, and their heart, their emotions. You know, do I believe that this requires me to change? And where they're confident that they're going to be supported through thick and thin. You know, not just supported in the moment because it seems like a brave thing to do, but supported when some of those things go wrong. In healthcare, maybe different it will be different in other words, but in the healthcare world, almost always um, the most important thing to seeing through change successfully is the absolute engagement and commitment of committed clinicians who articulate the case for change on behalf of their patients and most often their communities as well Backed by the evidence, of course, but willing uh, with support to champion the needs of their patients and communities. So, uh, in healthcare, uh, the clinical uh, response to this is absolutely um, critical. And with that, I think it's possible. Ruth, can
1: be- I can I stop you here? Because I know that David needs to go, and I want to bring Kevin then, and then we'll we'll resume the discussion amongst us. But I want to make sure that we, they also get um, a chance to. Um, share their thoughts so that David can react to that, um, so thank you very much for your, for your considerations on this. But, okay, but I wanted to come to you to really also bring your challenge, you know, leading a national response and giving us really a sense of how you practically make this collective decision-making a reality from a more, I guess, political leadership standpoint. You need to unmute your mic. It's still muted. Try. It's okay. What about now? Yeah, perfect.
3: Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you, David uh, and Ruth. And uh, let me congratulate ODI uh, and Sarah, Ben, all the team for organizing this uh, webinar. Uh, First, I should congratulate WHO for the excellent work it's doing. There is no perfect organization anytime, anywhere, but I believe despite the resource constraints, WHO is doing an excellent job. This is my perspective from developing countries and especially from Africa. I should also uh, express my uh thanks and appreciation for the real heroes the healthcare professionals the frontline personnel who are sacrificing their lives to save society having said this uh we are at at a very unique situation and the very reason that it makes it unique is we are not dealing about health issue uh kobe 19 is not Healthcare issue. For me, it's a, an issue that deals about the vulnerability of the system we have developed, the technology we have developed, the healthcare system we have developed, an equitable uh, uh, wealth sharing system we have developed, and also the robustness and resilience of the global economy, especially after 2018. So this virus or this pandemic made this uh, the vulnerable uh, showed the vulnerability of the system. Within two to three months, we have observed globalisation. Within two three months, we are observing political crisis, and we are also observing social crisis. So this is a much more broader issue going beyond the health issue. Health is so important. But it has become complicated and complex because it's intertwined with with many aspects, and this makes it quite challenging because overall global collaboration is very weak. The world has seen uh, similar challenges during World War II, post World War II, uh, during European recovery, 2008 uh, uh, global recession. But because of the global uh, collaboration, some outcomes were able to be, uh, was possible to to record. And now uh, we uh, are faced with uh, weak global collaboration. Uh, The second point, from a perspective of a developing country or developing world, the main challenge is they have to deal with big crisis, a complex crisis, health front, social, economic, political, but with a very, very limited resources, with a very limited knowledge base, with a weaker healthcare system. So the challenge becomes much, much bigger and much, much complicated. Our uh, leaders and governments do have a choice. They cannot 100% address the costs the difficulties related with the crisis, but they can have an impact. One key impact is they have to mobilize the whole society. This this is what makes it different is, it requires mobilization of the whole public. Community awareness is critical. You cannot implement social distancing by putting police on the streets, it's impossible. All the healthcare, the hygiene measures depend on the awareness of the community. So Ethiopia uh, government has focused on mobilizing the public. The second aspect is we can't afford weak collaboration, weak coordination among government apparatus. So for us, the challenge is how we synchronize, how we complement measures at federal level, at regional national state level, at local level and also how the government can closely work with the private sector. This is a critical issue and governments uh, uh, can play a positive role and show their leadership when they have the political commitment uh, to do that. This other element is the issue of learning. Africa, is, uh, yeah, Africa is now the, coming towards the end and it may have an opportunity to learn from what has happened elsewhere but as we all know the situations are quite unique you cannot copy from south korea or from italy uh, understanding the unique uh, peculiarities in
1: Thanks, and we'll come back to that later in the discussion. Ben, um, just before I go back to David, what's the science policy angle on this collective decision-making? I mean, we've seen a lot of challenging interactions between experts and decision-makers. How can this work? You're muted.
4: Um, Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, David. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you, baby. And I also want to thank my co-authors on the briefing paper that Inform this, who are a government specialist and mathematical epidemiologist, and myself as a crisis response and innovation specialist. In a sm- very small way, we, I think we, we learned a lot in doing this uh, paper about collaboration across uh, different scientific disciplines. Now, the first thing I want to say about science policy relationships is that the role of expertise in science has been weakened in public institutions in the post-truth era of recent years. And the global global crisis that's been caused by the coronavirus pandemic have put science policy interactions back at the forefront. And they really highlighted the fact that the quality of these interactions have a tangible impact on lives and on livelihoods. Now, during crises where both policymaking and science are operating in conditions of deep complexity and deep uncertainty, policy decisions are usually a hybrid of political and technical considerations. They become part of a system that emerges in crisis that is a tightly coupled system where science and policy are not in a vacuum, but they're really closely intertwined with societal concerns. Now, policymakers may claim that policy is based on the best available scientific advice, but during crisis, the evidence is unclear. The understanding is never complete. There are always gaps and there are always risks. And how the science policy relationship is framed in that context has serious implications for public understanding and for trust in exactly the way that Ruth and David and RKB have talked about. And I want to give just two examples, one domestic and one international. During the BSC, during the mad cow disease outbreak in the 1980s and 1990s, initially scientists were very uncertain as to whether or not the disease could affect people. And although policymakers and bureaucrats were secretly concerned about this, the science was poorly represented to the public. Now, the goal at the time could have been to eradicate health risks or it could have been to keep, uh, manage them sufficiently, to keep markets stable and keep people buying beef. But what happened was economic interests prevailed to start off with. There was a dominant narrative that shaped both the science and the policy in the crisis. And eventually the case destroyed policymaker credibility and undermined, undermined public faith in science-based policymaking. I want to contrast that with changes in measles vaccine policy in Niger, a sub-Saharan African country, which is supported by Matt Ferrari, one of my two co-authors on this briefing paper. Working with Médecins Sans Frontières and Niger's Ministry of Health, Matt and colleagues helped to understand how policymakers take a much more scientifically and socially grounded understanding of an episodic measles outbreak that were killing many children. Working in an iterative fashion, the scientists were able to understand the dynamics of measles based on not just on epidemiology, but on social movements and on seasonal economic pressures. And they helped design a more uh, more adaptive response, which drew many different types of expertise on communities themselves, on scientists, on policymakers. And it helped change the government vaccination policy from a rigid one to a more flexible one with very positive health outcomes. And what this shows us is it's neither a policy-led nor a science-led, nor a society-led model that's most desirable in these crisis settings. The worst result of a one-side dominating is a kind of standoff, which results in mutual finger pointing and accusation and blame, and ultimately all sides suffer, but especially the most vulnerable. Instead, what you need is what Lenny Ward and other co has written about, wow. mutual accountability that leads to continual interaction between policymakers, scientists, and the public at large. And this to me is the definition of collective uh, decision-making. And this tripartite now, Can I rela- stop
1: you here? Because I can see that David really needs to go. <laughs> you know, the demand needs time. No, okay, then carry on, you can finish.
2: <laughs> no, 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 I guess somebody rang me, but I, I, I don't. Thank you, it was just a one-minute piece of news. Thank
4: okay, you. Okay, perfect. Then finish your points, uh, Thank you. Um, th- this tripartite relationship between science, policy and society Needs to be given space to evolve over time. You need to learn to adapt, to cooperate, to to work effectively, to de- address shared problems, and to develop that mutual trust and accountability. And it's a bit like the idea of symbiosis in evolutionary biology. We need this co-evolving relationship that needs to be candid and trust-based and is accepting of new and emerging understanding. Thank you.
1: Great. Thank you very much, Ben. That was really uh, insightful. So, David, let me come back to you. It's been really a privilege to have you here. We, we can see the tremendous pressures and the demands on your time. I just oh. want to give you the chance to share a closing thought, and, and particularly you know, thinking of those in leadership positions who perhaps see the need to adapt you know, their responses but feel the anxiety of doing so. What would be your advice to them?
2: So, first of all, uh, Sarah, how, what a delight to hear Ruth explain that this is unlike anything she's ever had before. And that actually to go through this, collaboration is necessary, but people do need to be directed. If you just have the collaboration uh, floppy, it, it, it just doesn't work. And this is an international problem, and it does need a directed international solution, full of all the caveats. And then... Uh, Arkebe says, and look, it's not just a health crisis. The virus is the problem, but actually it's causing system disturbance right throughout my society, right throughout my continent, and actually right throughout the world. So it's a multifaceted, multi level crisis. And he's very clear. And then Ben says, and yes, and unfortunately, the Various elements that we absolutely need now are not in place. And so I'm thinking, how do we move from here? So I just want to share with you, Sarah, Ruth, Arkebe, and Ben, what I have been trying to work through in my own head. What can we do? We do have to find a way through all this, but not for ourselves, because any one of us in leadership positions is having to help a load of other people make sense of all this and do the massive shifts that Arkebe said are necessary. And he was very clear, this won't work unless all of society is moving along in the same direction. What a massive challenge this is. So, here are five things that I thought while I was listening. First of all, we have to see the big picture as well as our local picture. Ben's point, again, saying that, uh, sorry, Archebe's point, saying, you know, it, it is actually a set of systems challenges. And Ruth's point, it is huge. And Ben's point, we need to actually really look at it in different ways. See the big picture all the time. It will evolve. We're learning. That's my first one. We've got to do big thinking. Number two, everybody sees the big picture differently. So we have to be able to, live with multiple versions of the truth in our own heads at the same time. We've got to be super careful. There's no one truth. Everybody's got a version of the truth, and we have to be able to respect that. Thirdly, everywhere is different. Ethiopia itself, a great kaleidoscope of different communities, is very different from London, is very different from India, is very different from China. He said you can't apply from one to the other. So let's be locally specific. Fourthly, we're trying to work with people, we're trying to help them sense make. We've got to meet them where they are, not where we are. I, as a public health professional, have got to take off my uniform and become somebody who can connect with people without the white coat, without the stethoscope, without the crest of my organization. Meet them where they are, not where I think they should be. And then when we meet with them, we have to feel into their emotional rhythm and emotional pace, because everybody is having an emotional response to this. Again, the panellists brought this out. So, those are my five thoughts as I leave you. I'm sorry about that. It's just a, a UN thing, a uh, um, New York-y thing, and I have to do It's, firstly, being able to see the big picture, as well as our own piece of it, even though that's painful, and to let that evolve. Secondly, living with multiple perspectives at the same time without ever thinking that one is right and the other is wrong. Even if we feel that in our souls, we have to somehow deal with that and deal with the fact that there are different truths. Thirdly, everything has to be looked at in its context, in the place where it's happening. Fourthly, meet people where they are rather than where we think they should be. Gosh, that's hard work, all of us particularly us medics. And fifth, get into their emotional rhythm and pace. Get into their mood. Get into their beat, their their drum beat, because they may be in a different space from us. I think this is doable. I think this is the kind of leadership that you're talking about here today. I think ODI and all the two hundred and one people on this call can actually find ways to do this kind of living systems leadership, or whatever other term you want to use for it, I don't think there's any one language, and can do it wherever they are. And I'd love to learn from everybody here how you think this can be done. This is collective. It's not one person telling others. We can reflect to each other, but we're all learning together. And Sarah, if you don't mind, I do need to to drop off, because the next one is about this political stuff. And it's going to be a tricky one. And I just need to spend five minutes getting my head straight with the other panelists before it starts in 12 minutes' time. I don't, okay. Absolutely,
1: David. Thank you so, Thank you. so much. I well, your I'll time listen to, your to the
2: recording. I'll listen to the recording with great interest. It's just because I'm public health, but I've done a few other things, uh, I, I find myself being in, in one of more places than I can comfortably be. But my colleague, John Atkinson, is on the call, I think. Ruth may know him, and he is able to. Uh, he will be keeping track of things and making sure that we can stay in touch. And with that, thank you all. Very, very good. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you
1: so much, and good luck with you know everything you yeah, do thank because you. ultimately we all you. benefit. Thank you very much, David.
2: Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Thanks. All. Ben. Thank you for setting it up. Bye bye. Bye.
1: Thanks. Great. Well, that was a treat, really, to listen to David. But let me now move to the results of the poll, because actually I find that they're quite interesting and, to be honest, surprising in some respects. So, um, I'll start with the least sort of, um, if you want, uh, chosen, selected as uh, what is important, you know, the biggest challenge to effective leadership in the coronavirus response. So the, the, the sort of Last, it was being open and transparent about learning, which only got 60 percent, followed by building trust with teams, communities, and individuals, which only got 70 percent. Um, then you get a bit sort of more, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, there's a bit more, uh, uh, a bigger number of people have selected, making collective decision makings across different uh, diverse groups, 29 percent But what people really think is the biggest challenge is actually bridging science, evidence and information and policy making and decision making with a whopping 39 percent. It would be interesting to reflect on that. I mean, personally, I think the issues around, you know, openness, transparency, and trust are very much linked to that challenge of bridging the, the science and the policymaking. But maybe that's something we can, you know, reflect on collectively in the discussion. Um, but let me come to you, Ruth, and you know, then I'll come to Arkebe and Ben, and let's try and leave a bit of time. You know, there are so many questions that um, people in the audience are asking, so I want to make sure that I get some of their questions as well. Um, But you know, I just want to come to you with this issue of building trust because even though people have not, you know, the the audience has not really selected that as one of the most important. I do think it's fundamental, you know, in responding to crisis and also how differently trust can be built in, you know, uh, are a sprint crisis versus a marathon crisis. So from your experience, what do you think are the strategies in crisis that really have worked in the past from which we can learn? You have to mute.
0: Ruth, can you unmute, please? I can, my apologies. I should be okay, no? You still can't hear me. We can hear you now. Okay, good. Um, So, just to set the scene uh, a little bit for me um, so, the the National Health Services in the UK occupies a pretty unique uh, position at the heart of our society, so, people either love it, or they hate it, uh, they complain about it endlessly, but they defend it uh, against any criticism, and because of that it 's a highly political uh, organization and often uh, becomes first or second on the list of people 's most important concerns when there 's a general election. so the consequences of that are that the change process uh, in health in the u k is highly politicized, uh, generating huge conflict uh, and meaning that you know change management requires Uh, resilience both against the conflict but also against the bureaucracy uh, that that imposes layer upon layer so that's the norm for us and I want to contrast that with what's happened in response to to COVID and see what the learning might be from that that we could apply uh, in the next phase so uh, in response to the first peak uh, the NHS has come together absolutely at speed as an achieved in weeks what might normally have taken years. So, dramatic scaling up of critical care capacity, transformation of the way in which many services are delivered digitally, for example, or with remote consultation, centralization of key services to make sure that they're sustained. Um, so, why would that be? Um, alignment around a single purpose, responding to this peak of infection. Uh, we've got energised clinical leadership freed up from the normal bureaucracy, uh, there's been a system rather than an organisational focus. There's not been the jealousy that normally per, uh, pertains around individual organisations. There's been an absolutely phenomenal voluntary effort, both in terms of staff being willing to be retrained and also public goodwill. So, you know, Captain now Colonel Tom, uh, who's generated, you know, 30 million pounds in, uh, in donations, uh, and of course, the lockdown. So, you put all that together, a huge and uh, really fleet of foot response to the to the challenge. And of course, there's been a command and control system, but essentially it's been collaboration and adaptive uh, behaviour to respond to the crisis. Now, there've been some consequences to that with some significant weaknesses exposed, which I think will help me turn this into the question of a marathon and not a sprint. So, huge drops in activity, uh, 70% drop in cancer referrals, 50% drops in A&E uh, attendances, uh, very significant uh, shortfalls in central procurement of important things like testing, PPE, ventilators and the like, some of which have created some very, very narrow political top-down imperatives, which of course are very difficult for the frontline uh, and their leaders to accommodate. And sadly, a real disconnect between the health sector and the care sector, which in the UK is means-tested. So that's uh, meant an under-resourced service for some of our most vulnerable people and the staff who try to care for them and obviously an exhausted workforce in those areas which are most affected so now in that situation with those consequences we have to face up to the uh, recovery phase Uh, so that means recovering uh, health services as normal uh, building back all this um, uh, activity which is not there Uh, which is, you know, not just because we've turned services off, but because people have been too fearful to attend. Uh, Dealing with a second, third and maybe subsequent peak. So as David said, this is, we recognise this is here to stay. And out of that, creating a new normal, uh, whereby perhaps we can even capture and retain some of the innovation that there's been in responding to the crisis in the first place. So what might that require uh, from leaders? So this is turning to the central question. I think these points perhaps are more generic across different uh, sectors. So first of all, the collaborative system leadership that we've had, which is focused on the needs of a given population, not focused on the needs of an organisation or the needs of an individual profession, that's robust in the face of what will undoubtedly be in some cases a resurgence of the old rather silo-based defensive uh, response. So a system leadership which is robust in the face of that. Second, uh, leaders who are willing to share their future vision, their vision for how to get out of this, even where that's based on their judgment and not necessarily on a detailed analysis of some stable facts, uh, which are pretty thin on the ground. However, uh, I think one of the things for leaders to be aware of, which I see sometimes around me, is the tendency to become so immersed in the energy of the crisis, that they're unable to describe something about the future. When you need to give people some confidence, you need to be able to soak up some of the uncertainty for yourself and communicate some certainty for others, manage away some of these top-down silos of intervention that come and work across these boundaries with some empathy uh, for the situation that others find themselves in 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 different places. However, I think, if we are honest, in some cases it has been rather too easy for us to make changes to services in response uh, to COVID. We do have to now return to engaging genuinely with the population, with our patients, about the choices that we have made and the choices yet to make. We cannot assume that because people were willing to acquiesce yes to some of the changes that we have made in response to a crisis, that they will be content with those things becoming the way in which services are provided in the future. They will not, and they will expect to be engaged in some of the things that now need to go back to how they were, some of the things that need to stay as they are for good reason, and some changes yet more to come in order that we can properly segregate the different sorts of activities that there will be in response to second, third and future waves. We have to face up to the suffering that the choices that we have made have already created increased morbidity on waiting lists, mental health issues in the community and in our staff, exacerbated inequalities, exhausted staff and our neglect of social care. I do not think people are going to respect leaders who think that this can be, as it were, uh, covered by something that purely connects to emotions. So, the clapping, uh, the medals, uh, the donations, all of those things are nice, but they do not uh, excuse or avoid the need for uh, you know real leadership out of this uh, crisis leaders must ex- avoid uh, excessively worrying about scrutiny so if you worry all the time about the scrutiny that's going to come or the blame that might arise from getting things that are things wrong, I think it will create a risk aversion in your behavior which won't uh, be as innovative as we need in the face of something significant. And my final point would be, uh, leaders need to look after themselves as well. Uh, you cannot uh, pretend that this doesn't have the same effects on, on you as it does on everybody who works with them for you. It has the same, the mental effects, the physical, <clears throat> fears, the pressures, they're all the same. And unless you provide care for yourself, you're not in a position to provide support and help uh, to others. And it's really important, however hard, to try and set the right example. Uh, in that regard, and be open about it. I'll stop there, Sarah, because that will be my eight minutes. Thank you. Perfect.
1: Uh, and let me bring a question from the audience. Just a one-minute response, if you can, um, which is it would be interesting to hear. You know um, what the lessons we are learning now how you know, they should or will persist once the immediate crisis is over. So, is this a shock that can lead us to a new normal and allow us to be better prepared for the next shock whenever it comes?
0: Um, so, I think there's plenty of things which are uh, incredibly innovative, um, which have responded quickly to uh, the changes that have been required. And I think what we should try and do is to be straightforward about look, we've made these changes in the round. Here's some things that we think are fantastic and should state. The ability to have virtual uh, consultations, for example, in primary care, um, the, the hubs that have been created to deliver services to individual communities. Why would we not hang on to those and keep them? There's some other things we've done. We think they might be good. We think they might work, but let's have a proper dialogue, a proper discussion about whether people think that they're right to stay or not. And then there's some things which, frankly, we have put in place simply to deal with this uh, crisis. So, for example, we've set up a very, very big uh, ITU capability inside a conference centre. Nobody would try and justify providing ongoing patient care inside a conference centre. It was done to deliver a surge capacity. So if we need surge capacity in the future, which I think we will, then how does that model that we worked on there get integrated into something that's much more sustainable? So I'd say our, our, our approach needs to be to be honest. Some things are great. We should keep them. Some things maybe we should discuss them and think about them. And some things are definitely not. We should find a way of dealing with the problem in a different way.
1: Thanks, absolutely. I think all big global crises, without the Spanish Flu and the World Wars have brought a level of change that has then stayed with us, and we should be really proactive and, yeah, selecting the good parts and the important parts that can you know, make our lives. Yourself. Yeah, yes, yourself. absolutely, you do. we do need that. Um, okay, but let me come to you. Uh, you've talked quite uh, a bit before about the importance of openness and transparency about learning. So I'd like you to elaborate on that and tell us a bit more about how you think this can be achieved. Because, of course, it's a challenge. As we were saying before, leaders are very anxious about <laughs> this openness. And you work very closely with the national leader, being a leader yourself, of course.
3: Uh, <clears throat> uh, thank you very much. Uh, if uh, we look at the COVID pandemics, uh, the way spread in Africa, uh it was february 14 the first case was uh uh confirmed and uh, and currently if we look at the bigger picture the, africa does have now confirmed cases close to 40000 and uh deaths are around 1600 uh however this is the early phase uh and in terms of timing also we cannot uh, uh take exactly uh the graphs that has happened in europe or asia or the u.s because in terms of days uh, there is some discrepancy and uh, mortality rate is also around 4.3 percent which is half the global average uh, uh, mortality rate uh, and recovery is around one Uh this gives us uh, some perspective that uh, the way the COVID-19 pandemic is spreading is quite different in Africa. And even among countries also, is uh, is, is very different. If we just take two countries, Djibouti and Ethiopia, which are neighbors, uh, the way the pandemic has spread is completely different. Uh, in Ethiopia, with uh, 110 million population, the so far confirmed cases are 100. Uh, 30 and uh three days have occurred uh and in january Ethiopia started to, to prepare around january and uh and uh a steering committee was established to take important measures but not mass uh, massive media or public relations work but effective uh preparatory work the first case was uh, uh confirmed on March 13, and uh, after March 13, it became a national campaign and the government reorganized itself, uh, championed by the prime minister. So the whole cabinet became the command center and all regions also followed uh, suit and they also had state of emergency as required they took different measures. So the biggest focus uh, at the time of such crisis is the ensuring coordination of government apparatus at federal level, at uh, regional and local level. So this has been the prime focus, and more or less, although not hundred percent aligned, but uh, the measures have been complementary, and this has really contributed to to have better impact. The second main focus has been. We have to build on the strengths we have. We cannot have ICU like NHS. We cannot have ventilators like uh, many hospitals in Europe. So this was well recognized, and we basically built on the healthcare extension system. We have uh, uh, around 21,000 healthcare facilities, from hospitals to uh, health posters, and the model of Ethiopian healthcare care system has been designed in a way, 85% are health hosts providing services to 5,000 uh, uh, community and then uh, healthcare centers, more than 3,000 and we only have 320 hospitals. Uh, so this has been the main uh, infrastructure we have been able to use. For instance, Ethiopia has conducted house to house Screening. And and 3.6 million uh, households were uh, involved uh, screened during this process. A total population of around 15 million in Addis Ababa city. 700,000 households were screened, and 2.3 million were screened. This is because of the infrastructure we have. But when with the uh, COVID-19 started, we didn't even have a single ventilator. And the action here has been to cope with shortage. And Ethiopian reliance maintenance facility maintained many of the ventilators in hospitals uh, freely to ensure that hospitals are equipped. We had limited beds, and the government mobilized within two to three weeks 50,000 uh, beds by converting university, public universities into uh, into. Quarantine sites. Also, for isolation, it had mobilized 11,000 uh, beds and th- for treatment, additional 3,000 uh, beds. This was done in two, three weeks, engaging all the universities, the private sector, healthcare professionals. So, at the center of this was uh, ensuring the whole community, the whole society is mobilized. And also, the ruling party had to discuss with all opposition parties how to fight COVID, because it's not time to fight each other. This is a bigger national disaster, national crisis. Everybody has to work uh, together. In terms of testing has been a major constraint. The first test was conducted in February. Uh, Testing kits, there was none, and the laboratory was not ready. Now around 23 laboratories are being ready, Close to 20,000 tests are have been conducted, and it has gradually increased. The first week, less than 50 per day, and after two weeks, uh, to more than 250, uh, and uh, now it has reached close to 1,500 each day. Gradually, it will increase to about 10,000 by end of May. So, this required huge mobilization of uh, of uh, resources and. On the economic side, also, the government does not have privilege uh, or resources to have a stimulus, uh, or it doesn't have the resource to provide safety net. So we had to build on the social fabric. The public, the communities use uh, supporting mechanism among themselves, so encouraging them. And from companies also, we try to target it, exporting company Uh, to provide them special support. For instance, now the government has provided for manufacturing exports, uh, free rail transport, at zero rail transport. And dry port facility has been reduced uh, in terms of cost. Uh, So the government tried to mobilize uh, supporters. Ethiopian Airlines is a major carrier in this part of this uh, globe. And as we all know, our aviation industry is very challenged many companies are going bankrupt ethiopian Airlines has done its best to adjust to prove its resilience shifting to cargo uh, consignments uh, adapting its operations and the aim is that it will have to survive on its own without government stimulus so if we taking these examples if we try to take lessons from this in terms of adaptive leadership the first thing is variation and unevenness is very very important every country is different every province is different every locality is different social fabric etc so to be uh, to have an effective adaptive leadership government should be able to understand the unique condition and take specific measures the second aspect is we are dealing with the unknown we are dealing with the uncertain we are dealing with a virus Exponentially spreading with global mobility. So it's it's quite the solutions are quite complex. We may say decisions must be based on evidence, but who judges whether the evidence is correct or not? In an unknown and uncertain times, how can you have all evidence to take bold measures? Take bold measures, you need to have all the evidence, but time does not allow you uh to to wait so you have to take bold measures but you have to flexibly adjust as you learn in the process and you have to follow also an orthodox approach in public awareness that played an important role an example is ringtones each telecom introduced a ringtone with three messages how to wash hands etc so this has been a powerful instrument to remind especially people in the rural areas. Uh, uh, So the dealing with an unknown and uncertain requires better understanding to use whatever evidence is available, but also to understand the limitations of the evidence, authenticity of evidence, so to take bold measure, and again, uh, to be flexible and adjust. The third lesson that must be taken is, every decision is a political decision as every decision will affect the community. there will be part of the society who pays the price. Uh, if there is a government support, someone will have to benefit while others are not going to benefit. And every decision has a political dimension. So here a critical challenge for the leadership is how we ensure that the decisions are, benefit the society. And, and second thing is how do we ensure that the measures we take now during time of crisis will be able to, uh, to sustain to give long-term benefits? Thank you.
1: Thanks. Okay, a very quick follow-up question, but just in one minute, please. You know, talking about this uh, un- anxiousness about you know not knowing for leaders, what have, this comes from the audience. What have you uh, seen that best support leaders to let go, to let? To take risks, to innovate, you know, to fail and move forward—is it training, coaching, peer support, or is it worth in dealing with this unknown?
3: Yeah, I mean, the first thing is providing information to all, uh, and providing uh, uh, communication is going to be important. Once people know what the risks are, uh, what is uh, uh, what the implications are then they will have to find uh, solutions. Local initiatives have to be taken. Some of the initiatives I was presenting initially were taken at local level. Uh, so uh, uh, providing uh, the uh, autonomy to decide, ensuring that uh, all government agencies also try to collaborate, providing them uh, informations uh, widely uh, is the, the key here and and uh, and, and in the measures we take also, for instance, state of emergency was taken before two weeks. Before that, the government didn't move fast to state of emergency or national uh, lock, uh, uh, I mean lockdown. Uh, because it's too early, people will have fatigue, and, and also it will have a negative impact as well as restricting the freedom of movement uh, of the public will have its own consequence. So, ensuring that the political prices and the social prices are not excessive is quite important within the bound of available information
1: thank you so much it was really uh, insightful to learn about how impressive uh, the response has been um, in the context of ethiopia but let me come to you with the hot topic You know, from the poll, and of course, the hot topic of the reality of uh, dealing with COVID, which is you know how we we've seen different leaders um, really adopting different approaches to embedding science and evidence into their decision making. So, how do we bridge that gap? You've already started telling us, you know, when when reacting to David, but can you elaborate um, on yeah how, how we can do better?
4: Thanks, Sarah. And I want to say my perspectives on the role of this science policy interface, both in peacetime and in crises, and how it can be strengthened. And there are three main ideas I want to share. The first is on biases. The second is on models or ways in which we we think about science policy interactions. And the third is how we can ensure science and policy can work together in adaptive ways to overcome these biases. So the first point is on biases. And there's been a lot made in the press and in public debate generally about the inappropriate use of nudge theory to guide the early phases of the UK's response planning. And I think this actually distracts from and undermines the value of behavioural science and the real value of behavioural science in the current climate is how it can actually shape and guide leadership and crisis leadership and the decision-making process itself. Now, it's really clear that leaders, scientists, all of us, have to consciously work to make sure our decisions are free from bias, whether it's during peacetime or in crises. And actually, there are so many different biases. There's no definitive list, but I looked at Wikipedia a few days ago, and there's something like 124 different decision-oriented biases, which actually makes it something of a wonder that any good decisions are ever made by human beings in any kind of situations, especially in crisis settings. But actually what these biases mean is that important decisions can be made by intelligent and responsible people and with the best information, with the best intentions, but can still be hopelessly flawed because of the complex evolving nature of the problems that we're facing and because of the way in which our own minds work and the way in which we distort decision-making processes. And there are a number of different ways we see this in the COVID response itself. So there's a whole range of different availability biases where we Frame COVID in the context of what we already know. So, the, seeing it as flu, for example, which is one thing, or, or as Ebola, or as any other pandemic that we might have seen previously. There's a whole range of different status quo biases that we have seen, where a, a certain kind of national exceptionalism that is, is, makes leaders in different countries say it will be different here. There's a whole range of different political biases. I think we see this both in the States, uh, most, most obviously. But I think when we see the debate about how to come out of lockdown and when to come out of lockdown in developed countries generally, they're very much framed around political uh, political lines. So I think, how do we then deal with these biases? Daniel Kahneman, who's written extensively about this, the Nobel Prize winning um, psychologist and economist, he points out that knowing about biases doesn't necessarily help us be uh, less susceptible to them. But there are some things that we can do as decision makers. We can ask other people to point them out to us. We can intentionally diversify the networks that we draw upon. We can, as organisations and cross organisations, we can have systematic processes about decision-making processes to make, make sure that we are aware of these biases and have them pointed out to us by teams that are consciously set up to be devil's advocate. And we can, of course, rely on science. And one of the most obvious and established ways to navigate biases is through ensuring that we use the best available science. And this leads me to my second point, that we have the mantra at the moment about follow the science or being driven by science. But the debates about the SAGE group, the Scientific Advisory Group and Emergencies here in the UK, or about the role of the WHO globally, shows that this is not a simple transfer of science into policy. There are many different ways of seeing this interaction, and in my observations of different national contexts, I see I see at least four different metaphors for the way in which science is being used in the current pandemic response. The first is science as scaffolding, to try and help elevate the policy discourse and the debate on how and what should be done, and this is perhaps most obviously seen in countries like Germany. It's uh, it's it's, it's, uh, it's quite a technocratic, but quite um, a systematic approach to using science and to be driven by science in a really serious fashion. The second model is science as spanner. It's not so much scaffolding, it's about fixing problems and issues and informing decisions in real time. We see that in the NHS, as Ruth was highlighting. We see it it in Singapore, we've seen it in South Korea, a much more adaptive, uh, fixer-style approach to science. The third model that I observe, and this is a bit more problematic, science as a shield to try and protect and insulate decision-making from external criticism. But then this can also turn into a variation, which is criticism then being deflected onto science. And that could be seen science as scapegoat. And this is something that I think we have seen largely in the UK. And the fourth model is science as servant, science uh, to meet public expectations, to affirm leaders' own positions. And this may well be how science is being seen or viewed at the highest levels, in the United States. Now, each national context, each issue, each policymaker even will take their own approach, depending on their interests and the pressures they run. And some of these models reinforce biases, and some of these overcome them. During crises, I think the failures and flaws of some of these, especially the shield and the, the servant approach, become much more apparent. And this is because, as I alluded to in my opening content, uh, comments, the problems are complex and uncertain. There is not just one scientific approach that helps us consider all of the relevant factors. And there certainly isn't all the data to inform the decisions in a timely fashion. So this leads me to my third and final point, which is in the face of complexity, in the face of ambiguity, what you need is a constant process of hypothesis building, of analysis and of reflection. And this requires interpretation, sense-making, judgment and ongoing learning. And this helps both decision-makers and advisors balance and in, uh, make sense of these different interests and interpretations. It's something that Lenny Wilde, my other co-author of the briefing paper, has written about extensively in the context of governance programmes. Now, our briefing paper, we talk about a number of different ways to ensure science policy interactions are adaptive. And the first of these, and there are four that I really stand out, The first is openness to diversity of ideas, of representation, and, uh, to a great extent, this has happened in the UK or US or France, or this is it happening in some
1: countries? Okay, you may need to mute
4: two minutes. I... There's so a background
1: noise. noise. I'm asking Akebe to mute because there is a background noise. Carry on, but please come to the end. Yeah,
4: um, so around diversity of ideas and representations, so I think this is the Germany is enlisted not just epidemiologists and medical specialists, but also social scientists, philosophers, historians, theologians, as it navigates the delicate balance between opening society and safeguarding the and the public. We need much more space for debate and networks and dialogue around theories and assumptions. We need decision makers to appreciate and question the inner workings of different hypotheses, and they need to be tested on an ongoing basis. We need to have clear structures and processes for governance to are set out for deliberative decision making. And I think actually, the Scottish. One and the loss
0: really is coming from you. Okay. Um, the,
4: the Scottish Government's been really, uh, really great in this context. They've actually set out five days ago, they published a framework for decision making on the pandemic response that sets out the challenges they face and the approaches and principles that will guide decision making over time, including the criteria for making decisions. And this includes the values by which they make those decisions. And the fourth piece around transparency and inclusion, and this is about bringing people Uh, People, ordinary people who are impacted by crisis into the decision-making process. We saw this really clearly with Ebola, where the community response showed the need to make decisions with people and not simply to impose decisions upon them. And this includes not just the quality of decisions but also inclusiveness and results and it strengthens public trust. And I just want to close on this point on public trust and and the diversity of expertise that's drawn upon. In the UK last year, during the the, um, general election, Ipsos Mori showed that politicians were the least trusted professions in the entire country. Just 14% trusted politicians to tell the truth. They actually displaced advertising executives as the bottom in the UK. But the most trusted professionals in the country are nurses. 95% of the population say they trust what nurses say. So why are nurses not represented in the highest levels of decision-making about a crisis in which they are at the front line? I just want to make that, I guess my final point is just very simple. What we do in this crisis will have repercussions, indirect and direct, for years to come. And if this is going to be a turning point to a new kind of politics, then these principles of, uh, that we've been talking about around dialogue, around openness to diversity, around transparency, around clear, open decision-making become more important The UK approach, which has been to clothe the decision making in the Official Secrets Act, is the exact opposite of what we need right now and the exact opposite of what we need for the future. And especially not just to guide the response, but to help shape the recovery. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Ben, a lot of uh, food for thought there, you know, <laughs> I love to listen again to recordings with so many important points, you know, to really dwell upon. But on, on the last one, in terms of, you know, who are really the trusted people and where um you, you can, uh, again, have decision making that you uh, put your confidence in. There is an interesting question from the audience. There are loads of questions from you, and unfortunately, I can't in you know, all bring in because we're almost at time. But but I'll, I'll just ask all three of you um, this one, and please do give a very quick answer. Um, which is, you know, it seems that actually countries where women are leaders—South Korea, New Zealand, Taiwan, Germany, others—have done better than others. There is more trust. There is, you know, leadership that has inspired people more. Has, you know, the level of decision making that. Um, um, citizens have responded to better. What lessons can be drawn from this observation? Um, I'll, ca- I'll start with you, Ben, and then go to Arkebe and, and end with Ruth. But will you let to be super quick because we've got just uh, five minutes before we end?
4: but I th- uh, we've talked already about the role of feminist le- uh, feminist leadership, Sarah, and I think there's something it, it, it goes beyond gender and it's about a way in which you approach and engage with problems. And I think. What have the leaders done in those contexts? They've listened to diverse voices. They have uh, paid attention to vulnerabilities. They've been aware of the political nature of the decisions they're making and the power dynamics that play out. And they've tried to make sure that they, uh, as David put it, that they that it is a caring form of leadership. It is a leadership that puts love at the centre, I guess, in it, in it without being too idealistic. And I think that has really stood out. And, and, it, and it, I think it, it, it isn't just... Unique, I don't think it's unique. Feminist leadership doesn't mean gender specific. We can have women leaders that aren't feminist leaders, and you can have male leaders that are feminist leaders. So I think, but I think there is something there about the way in which feminist leadership is coming into its own in this crisis setting.
1: Thanks, Akebe. Akebe, you have some mute. Uh, do you hear me? Yes, uh, please go
3: ahead. In, term, in terms of adaptive uh, uh, leadership, I would first uh, try to highlight that uh, in Africa, in most cases, it's assumed there is a failure of leadership every time. Uh, what uh, this uh, uh, COVID pandemic is showing us is many governments, the took it seriously and tried to take uh, important measures uh, to, to to fight uh, in response to COVID-19. And, and some learning has also been facilitated. So it's a new organization, for instance, by CDC Africa, which is analyzing data from different African countries on a weekly basis experience sharing. So from uh, this perspective, African governments may have to capitalize on learning aspect learning from experience among these different african countries among different health ministries and also ensuring that they have there is an open system that encourages dialogue among different social groups among different representatives and decisions are supported also by our researchers despite the time constraints we cannot isolate issue of adaptive learning from an attitude it's an attitude it's, it's it's a culture learning. It it, not, it cannot just come during time of crisis and get lost after the crisis. It's part of an attitude a continuing uh, process. So here, an important thinking behind this is, in 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 uh, uh, perspective of COVID-19, uh, an important question government should put uh, is scientists should put is. How can we come out stronger after COVID-19 pandemic? Not just the end of the virus, but how the whole system can become more effective. Governments can be more effective. The economy can, can be more resilient. Corporations can be more uh, 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 less vulnerable. How technological advances could be improved. So we need to raise basic issues that go beyond uh, COVID-19 pandemic.
1: Thank you very much, Orkebe. And, and Ruth, as a woman who has led responses to many crises, are you um, excited?
0: I have to say I agree with uh, with Ben. I don't think it's gender specific. I can think of female political leaders that would get a very very low rating on it, and others that would receive high. I, I think it requires like two seemingly contradictory things, but in reality they they're not. One is to be willing to be decisive and pro- provide direction. And the second is to do that with empathy, i.e. the ability to understand uh, something from somebody else's perspective without necessarily having to sympathise with every single alternative view. So an empathy for where others are coming from and an openness and vulnerability uh, to being uh, seen to be wrong. I think if you put those two things together, you can get leadership, which is trusted. which might well have feminine our uh, characteristics but i think can just as easily be delivered by a man as by a woman and the opposite so i essentially agree with what ben had to say yeah
1: But thank you so much, all of you, and David, of course, as well, for what I think has been an incredibly insightful discussion. Unfortunately, we are at time. I think we could carry on listening to all of you and the insights you've got to share for a long time, but we need to wrap up. But I I mean, this, to me, has been incredibly valuable in terms of really shedding, you know, a light on the challenges that are facing leaders in the context of, you know, high uncertainty. It's multiple information sources, as we've heard, you know, sort of um different understanding of the crisis. To me, what is really clear is, yeah, we need to ensure trust, credibility, adaptability, innovation, we have heard that from all of you, you know, when it is most needed. Um, and the main takeaway, it's, and, and in a way, it also comes from my experience, you know, having led humanitarian responses. Is that, you know, leadership in crisis cannot be and should not be a black box. Um, you know, they, I've heard a lot of word, metaphors being used by leaders in response to COVID, and to me, those are the wrong metaphors because, you know, they they almost speak of security and secrecy. And what we've heard from all of you is, you know, to respond successfully to COVID, we need the opposite. We require openness, transparency. Um, the only way we can win is through cooperation and collaboration. Um, so we so at yeah, odi want to make sure that support leaders in this work can continue to promote an understanding and a debate around that. So we will hold the space for this debate in, the weeks and the months to come. As we've heard you know, from Ruth, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So, we'll have to continue to reflect um, on how we can all collectively uh, improve the response to the crisis. So, you know, thank you all of you for joining the conversation today, all of you who are online, um, but please stay tuned for more debates that will come soon from ODI on how we improve the response to COVID, but also how we make sure that the recovery is fair and sustainable, and how we can shape a new normal after COVID that really um, allows all of us to have a better future. Um, So, I hope you enjoyed today's discussion and please join me remotely from where you are to really thank Ruth, Arkebe, Ben and David for such an incredibly informative and insightful debate. Thank you very much everyone, stay safe and well, bye.